Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You asked me a question before. You said, how do you know in 10 minutes or seven minutes, even if it's two and three callbacks? And I think that prepared me, right? There's a, there's a, a thing that happens when you're, not, when you're not just sort of with your head down here, but when you're actually in a scene with somebody. Something else, there's an intuition, right? There's a, there's a, a, an energy, a chemistry there that that you you're speaking actor to actor. You know what I mean. You're you're seeing this this whole past right there in front of you. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Really excited today. Can't wait to get underway with my guest, Deb Aquila, who is one of the most renowned casting directors in Hollywood and is legendary. So without further ado, I'll give her the introduction that she deserves. She'll probably feel very uncomfortable, and by the time I finish, it's quite possible that the podcast will be over. But let us pray I can get her to stay. Born in Brooklyn from an Italian-American family, Deb Aquila obtained a scholarship to go to NYU, where she studied at the Stella Adler Conservatory and spent six years studying script analysis with Adler herself. If you know anything about acting, that is amazing. She then went on to work on the first two seasons of Miami Vice and several feature films including Michael Mann's Manhunter and the historic Pope of Greenwich Village. Her casting director career began with Steven Sodenberg's Sex, Lies, and Videotape and Uli Adul's The Last Exit to Brooklyn. Before she moved to Los Angeles in 93 to cast Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption, Aquila completed over 18 independent films in New York, including Alison McLean's Crush and Steven Sodenberg's King of the Hill. 
In 93, Aquila became senior vice president of features casting for Paramount Pictures. During her seven years at the studio, she worked on incredible successes such as Primal Fear and Mission Impossible 2. After departing Paramount in 99, Aquila returned to the independent casting world with Sam Raimi's The Gift, starring Kate Blanchett, Keanu Reeves, and Katie Holmes, and What Women Want, directed by Nancy Myers and starring Mel Gibson and Academy and starring Academy Award winners Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt. Aquila taught script analysis for another legendary man in the acting business, Larry Moss, until forming the Aquila Morong Studio in 2011 with her partner Donna Morong, where she offers acting classes and shares her unique insight into the industry and the craft of acting with aspiring actors and actresses. Her amazing list of credits also include La La Land, The Expendables, Dexter, The Shield, Now You See Me Too, Live Free or Die Hard, Crank, and the Underworld series. Aquila has been recognized 15 times by the Casting Society of America, winning three Arteus Awards for excellence in casting for her work in Red, my Week with Marilyn, and La La Land. Please welcome. What an honor. I'm so excited to have her here, and I know you're going to be too. Please welcome my guest today, Deb Aquila. Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I have a, a near and dear spot in my heart for casting directors because I've been fortunate enough in my career where I've represented people who those people in your field have given their first shot to. And it's one of the greatest feelings in the world, they tell me, when somebody walks in and they get one of those first jobs. I remember Jay Moore and Alexa Fogel in New York and him walking in her room. She had all these pigs all over her office. Oh, I love, I love her. Yeah. <laughs> Great yeah. casting director. Yeah. It's just these amazing things where people go out of their way and they fight for somebody who has never done anything in their lives. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, which I find fascinating, I want you to tell me, because I know there was a movie that I saw that you cast that completely shook my foundation and blew me away uh -oh. about the power of hiring an unknown. And I want you to tell me, if I have it in my mind, the person who you remember as the unknown actor that you found and you broke and you gave the opportunity and you fought for that turned out to be one of the greatest actors or actresses of our generation. Do you mind sharing that with me? Who do I think you're talking about? Yes. Edward. Edward Norton, that's mm -hmm. correct. Primal Fear. Yes. One of the things I heard was that he was up for the role and there was another actor that was much more established than him that was up for the role great actor. I had heard that Richard Gere was lobbying for the actor with the most experience because this was a big movie for him and he felt it was very important. And I heard that he was concerned about whether he should surround himself with a person with less experience or somebody with more experience. 
and it ended up being Edward Norton. And to me, it was a performance that I'll never forget. I still have goosebumps from it. Can you tell our audience about that story? I can't say from Richard's perspective, but um, I can tell you that Richard was very supportive. Um, uh, I, I, it was an arduous process. It, it was. Um, and uh, New York, even though I'm from New York, that's where I grew up, was the very last stop on the Primal Fear Express as we went through the United States. Now, I didn't actually go to each and every city, but, um, you know, uh, Trisha Wood at the time, uh, that's where, you know, we started together at Paramount when I was over there. Um, I joined Paramount right after Shawshank. I came out here with Shawshank and joined Paramount shortly thereafter. And Trisha, um, we met on Shawshank and then she came with me to Paramount. That's almost 25 years ago and we're still together. So... We started on Brady Bunch was our first film over there, which was so enjoyable. I can't even (laughs) just just working with Betty Thomas and on that script. And Gary Cole comes out of my bathroom wearing that wig. And (laughs) there goes Betty off the couch onto the floor. Betty Thomas is most well known to the audience probably before that as an actress on NYPD Blue. Yeah, yeah. What people don't know about Betty Thomas is she literally talks like a sailor. <laughs> and so every other word is like, <laughs> F this, F that, you mother effer. She was very, very behaved, very well behaved. She was absolutely a joy to work with and so funny. It was never, it just was never stressful. We just had a good time. And, you know, then you see that, you see Brady Bunch and you see the cast and, you know, that's... um there was a stress-free sort of situation as much as it was stress-filled because you had, you know, you had to match the TV show, people's memory of the TV show. They had to act. They were funny. And they had to look like it was a triple threat. So we worked our our way through five months of of casting, and I have to say she was she was an angel. But, you know, what? I'd never been to a studio before. I'd never worked at a studio before. So, right, so I come out of independent film in New York. Sex, Lies, and Videotape was my first film. How do you follow probably one of the greatest independent films of all time when you're starting your career? It's like winning an Emmy Award on your first show and then trying to follow that up. Did you have pressure in your mind? Like, what do I got to do to keep this Mm -mm. streak alive? Or you never thought about that? Never really thought about it. You keep your head down, do the work. You just keep going, right? I mean, when you're doing... You see, but just conceptually, when you're when you're in it, you know, it's like the fly right on your <laughs> end of your nose. You know, you know, you've got this fantastic script and Steven Soderbergh and uh, these wonderful producers and 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 Nick and 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 Morgan Mason and um, you just do your best. You know, you just and and again, but that was remember nineteen. We started casting that. I always have to go back to when my first daughter was born. I have two daughters, Jessica and Katrina. And Jess was born in 89. And I remember going to the Sundance Film Festival after, you know, when we were sort of premiering up there. Well, not premiering, but we were showing up there at Cannes. And I remember getting on the plane. (laughs) Sorry, Jessica. I remember getting on the plane (laughs) and telling the uh, flight attendant, that I was four months pregnant and it was twins. 
<laughs> I was seven and a half months pregnant and crazy, and I shouldn't have been on that plane. And I got to Sundance, and that was, yeah, walking down Main Street, and you're almost seven and a half months pregnant, and there's no air was an experience. But you don't know that when you're casting. You just know that you have this beautiful gift and this wonderful, this this text and these great themes, right? So if I back up a little bit, um, that was uh, 88, so 87, just around 87 is when we started, mid-87. Um, and as with all independent movies, you you get an attachment, you lose an attachment, the movie goes, the movie stops, it stalls, it goes, it stops, it stalls, right? And then, um, you know, uh, the New York, as you know, especially in the in 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 that time, we all were very close. You know, the agents and the casting directors. I can't do my job without them. They're my partners. So, um, it was because of 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 three very um, dedicated folks that really believed in in the script and in Stephen. Um, they really fought and got James attached, and then. Um, Stephen and I went to, down to see Beirut, the play, remember that? Um, and then we saw Laura, and then she came in, and that's how it went, and then the auditions went. Anyway, you don't know that when you're doing it, right? You know that you have something special, but you, and we had no way to know what was actually going to be Sex, Lies, and Videotape, that event that it was, that it became, that seminal sort of important thematic film, right, that Steven, Steven Soderbergh. Now we know it's Steven Soderbergh, right? But we didn't so, know them. No, but you know, his, that writing, those themes, you know, that man, he's, he's special. He's just, you know, it's like meeting Edward, right? Um, How did you meet Edward? It was a hard process. It took a long time. Um, it was a very difficult role. And you, what I was finding was that you would either get Roy or Aaron, right? These are the two um, characters. Um, but, you know, it's the actor who's playing Roy who's playing Aaron because there's no Aaron. Um, oh, oops, spoiler alert. <laughs> that's okay. If they haven't seen it, that's their problem. <laughs> so you're either going to get Roy or you're going to get Aaron, right? But the 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 difficult part of, of casting was to try to get somebody, an actor who understood that layer cake and understood sort of the backstory that would cause a person to behave this way, the, that need you know, in this, in this person to behave this way. How does a young man have that ability? I happen to believe, and you can disagree with me, that nothing at Yale taught him how to play that character. I believe that it was innately channeled inside of him and he had Ed, it all along. Edward is an intuitive person. He's, he's, he, when I met him as, as a young man, I got to know him a little bit. You know, he's he reads everything. He's he's just this he's a he's big brain and sees characterization in a way that was unusual. For those people who aren't in the acting profession, 
when you go in to read for Deb, you're given what are called sides. And sometimes yeah. they'll send you the script, but sometimes the director is very private and doesn't want to show the script. Mm -hmm. Even the person, director, writer's agent won't be able to get it to you. Sometimes you'll just have these sides. One scene, if they just want you to do one scene, it might have two scenes, it might have three scenes in it. They might be short, it might be one and a half pages, two, three pages, it might be a long scene that's five pages, whatever it is. And normally the casting director is reading with you and a lot of people make fun of casting directors for doing this, but they read very, very house of games. No, I disagree. Not all, especially those that are, that, that are, I mean, really take the training seriously. I was, I, you know, I was in conservatory for a long time, but a lot of my colleagues were. A lot of times it's an instinctual thing. There's nothing written on the paper that says, okay, the director is looking for you to accentuate this line here. He's looking for you to go soft here. Sure, but, it, you know, Ed, Edward's a writer, right? So, you know, it, and, and and as I said, you know, there, there's there's a script analysis part of, 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 of every actor's job, right? And, and that's really important. Right to be able to, if you can't get a script, to be able to intuit and do whatever research you can into the project. If you can't get a script, but um, go to source material if you have to. Right, if you can't get a script, get the get the novel. If the novel doesn't exist, try to research source material because you have to be able to know about that past of that character. Right, because you can't have a present without a past. So, you know, he, he look, I. I'm not even going to say what, how many people we had seen until till that date because it's obnoxious. But we were searching, and we were really searching, and I was very worried. Now I was vice president of you know casting at the time, right? And I was ready to fire myself a couple of times because I could not find it. I couldn't find the the turn, truthfully, between these two characters, right? And this young man, New York was the last, that was it, right? I mean, we had, we had seen so many VHS tapes <laughs> at the time, and there's, you know, stacking them <laughs> as you're making copies, you know, and, and poor Trisha and I would drive each other crazy and the stress. And, you know, when you'd, they'd come in from England and they'd come in from Australia and they'd come in from all over America and Canada, and there were four of us, like, culling through these tapes in the hope that we would get two, maybe three, that we could call back for Greg. Um, Greg Hubble was the director. And, you know, in the meantime, we're reading all day long, all day, every day, all day long. That's all I did was Primal Fear. And, I mean, of course, I had to service the rest of the movies on, you know, that were going as well, but that was, it became critical. So I Finally went to New York, and we had we were gonna we were gonna do an open call, but that wasn't viable. And um, so what we did was we had uh, this space, and we could it could you know sort of uh, hold a lot of actors uh, comfortably um, without a lot of distraction, so they could study their lines and their sides. And you know the script was available. I don't know that everybody read it, um, and we had. Uh, a schedule that 
was probably unrealistic, but we were going to try for at least 35 to 40 actors a day, if not more. Um, and the very first session, uh, this young man walked in, I think it was the second hour, I don't really remember, it was a long time ago. And I stopped dead in my tracks because there it was. It was, it was truthful. It was well thought out. Every layer I needed was there. I should say me. I should say Greg. I should say the script. Every layer the script needed, every layer that the actor needed was completely thought out. Edward had, uh, he was able to successfully go from this seamlessly from one character to the other character from one character because he knew why he knew why that characterization why he was behaving that way from the backstory right so <laughs> i made a call and to los angeles when everybody was awake and said he's going to come back again i talked to greg and i talked to gary lucchese and um Hawk Koch at the time, and I said, "We, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm guarded, <laughs> right? Because I didn't, I didn't want to hype it, and I also didn't want to get too excited and then get disappointed again." Hey, everybody! I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. As a caster and director, when you're asking an actor to come back a second time, are you looking for the person just to come back in and God, you're praying to Allah, just do exactly what you did before? Or are you looking for them to exceed the expectations that they delivered the first time and do better? I'm going to choose both answers. I'm also going to add one, um, and that is consistency. This is a person that I did not know. This is a person who was fairly new, had never done a movie before, um, but had just um, sort of signed up with the Signature Theater Company in New York. You know, he's a very serious young man, a very serious actor right, about the craft. He really cared about it. What I was looking for was consistency, right? Was this a fluke the first time? You know, did was I exhausted? Maybe I lost perspective, right? Uh, so I asked him to come back, obviously, because I wanted to test all of that. <laughs> and he was better. And then you can, there's a thing that happens. You get like this joy, right? Um, when you see something so expertly executed, so brilliantly executed from a, a very young person 
who's so thoughtful. He was so thoughtful. That's what really impressed me as well. And he was just a hell of a nice kid. And I thought, okay, my, my set is safe. Because, you know, you, you also have to cast the set, right? And I, was, and I always had Richard on my mind. I had Richard on my mind the whole time, right? Um, and I called um, Greg Hoblet and I said, when can you get here? And he hopped on a plane and Edward came back again. And that's when we really sort of got into it. And, and um, screen test was uh, arranged. There were two screen tests. The first one, um, he came out and had a screen test with Richard, who could not have been more supportive. He was amazing. In television, they don't let you test unless you've signed a 67-page contract that says what you're making for the pilot, what you're making every year for six, seven years. In film, you can do a screen test and not even have a deal in place. And they take the risk of knowing that if you get the role, that you're going to negotiate fairly. But in television, they don't take that risk. Yeah, that, that is true. And I've been in both situations with film, you know, where we, we have screen tests in place. Um, to be honest with you, it was so long ago. So what is that? 19, the film came out in 1996, right? So this is around 1994, okay, so 23 years. I don't remember if we put them in. I don't remember. I was so excited. I just wanted this young man to get in a room with Richard. I imagine there's more than one person screen testing because no one wants to just have one choice. You want to at least bounce something off somebody. And are you allowed to call Edward up and say, hey, buddy, everything was great. Could you just act a little excited on that line? I think that'll be better here. Well, no, I mean, you have to be fair to every every artist, I think, right? I think after these many years doing this, it's it's I, I really want them to win. You know, I, I do. Um, we're we're here to service them and the script and our filmmakers. We, it's funny, casting directors. We we have and now it's gotten more complicated, of course, um, now. But you know, you have you have the script right itself, and then you have the director, you have the studio, you have the agents, you have the managers. There weren't as many managers back then, but now there are many. You have a lot of people that need to be heard and you have to hear them. You have to make sure they're heard. Um, and they have the studio. And then you have the execs with whom you work every day. And then you have, you know, for me, it was it was Michelle Manning was my executive at the time. Uh, John Goldman, Sherry Lansing, right? Um, and all of these folks, ex extremely smart and experienced folks that um, know actors and love actors as well. So when he came out and he did that first screen test, um, he he was able to be completely present and, and do his job, even though he was opposite, you know, um, pretty gigantic movie star. And this is a person who'd never done anything so that gave me confidence because really here's here's what was about here was the thing about Edward he was confident and that gave me confidence right um, 
So I know I can go to Greg Hublin and say, you know what? I I, th- I think this is good, right? I think I think we're all going to be okay. I think this I think this kid's going to be able to deliver, right? On a huge set, with all those pressures, right? Because we have to consider that as well. Um, as it turns out, um, Richard was a little concerned um, because he's the. I think the way he was sort of approaching it was, you know, he was he was it was extremely important to him that he be able to feel as paternal as possible to this kid. Right, um, and he was, it, you know, it was he had already graduated from college. It was right on that razor line, you know. And we discussed it. I mean, there was no question about the talent. There was no question about the preparation. There was just no question about the intelligence and the commitment. But there was a second screen test was necessary to just make sure that that would work. And I have to say, that came from Edward. So when you have a role that's so complicated, you have the good angel, one character, and the devil. And do you start the screen test off with the first scene? Okay, we're going to start you off. You're, you're going to do the calm, nice guy character of yourself first in that scene. Next, you're going to do the scene where you are the nice, kind guy, and then you throw Richard Gere up against the wall. <laughs> the last one, you're just the devil. I'm going to just rephrase that and just say, you know, that there's, you know, Roy Roy was a, an, an abused kid. So, you know, I don't think bullies are born. I think they're made. Um, and uh, so, so the fact that he had such empathy, you see, that's the other thing. He had such empathy for his characters. Um, but I think, I think the order I had to check, I would have to go back and check this, but, um, I believe it started with the scene with Edward in the jail cell when he first meets Mr. Vale. I believe that's right. And then I think we went to the scene, um, where we first see the turn with Mr. Vale. And then I believe those were the first, those two scenes, but it's been a very long time since I've seen that screen test. Um, so every time I see it, it just, it's really, there's an alchemy. There's, it's magical to see it. So when you go and you find somebody like Edward Norton at the 11th hour and it all works out, do you ever think to yourself, God, I, I wonder when the next time is, am I ever going to find somebody that's magical you know, it's again? Funny. I, th- I don't think of it that way. I think they find us. I don't think we find them. I think they find us. That, that you know, I I I know that's kind of wacky, but they come to the craft because of their love for it. They come to the craft because of their talent for it. We're just happy to be there watching, and sometimes uh, you know, little miracles like that happen, right? But look at how much he prepared. Look at look at his work, right? It it would have been eventually me or somebody else, right? I mean, it's he it, it, talent wins. In, in in my view. Um, that's really Pollyanna. <laughs> but I, I feel that way. I mean, I feel like this, the, and, and, and I know people might be listening to this saying, oh my God, that's so, <laughs> I don't, what is she talking about? I've been working at this for 10 years and uh, I was trained by Stella Adler. And if it were not for that woman and Sandra Lee and Ron Burris, I would not be talking to you. Right. 
Um, and Stella always said, if there's anything else in the world that you can do, do it. <laughs> just get out. <laughs> just get out. I mean, just, right? See, that's a really good model uh, for your conservatory, <laughs> Stella. So, it, it, but she would say that. And the, and I, and I, I was so young when I started with her, but I didn't understand what the hell she was talking about. But I did understand what she was talking about. And it's, it's that passion. It's like, I, I do not have a choice. I have to paint. I don't have a choice. I have to act, right? I have to tell stories. I don't have a choice. I have to be a writer. Um, and that's what she was talking about. But that took me so many. That took me some 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 years on the planet to to figure that out. And I think that that's what what drives these artists, and what must drive them. And eventually, we're going to cross paths. What other profession in the world is there where you can just fool somebody like you a couple of times, three, four times for five or ten minutes? Mm. You can have the greatest role of your life on television or in mm -mm. film. Just to give you an example, Lorne Michaels been doing this for over 40 years. Most all the people that he casts on his show, their resume is a blank page. Mm -hmm. They have nothing. They go in, they test for seven minutes, mm -hmm. and he either makes the decision you're on the show or you're not on the show. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he's not sure. He'll bring them back for another test a mm -hmm. little later in the year mm -hmm. or a year later. Mm -hmm. So maybe 14 minutes. But that's what we do. Right, so I was with Stella for 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 a while via NYU, you know Tish, and I finished my my undergrad, and I I continued, but I, I had to continue with her just because I had to continue with her and and, and Sandra, um, mostly in the script analysis sort of, right? Because a I believed in what she was doing, and because I I don't have the chemistry. <laughs> I don't have, I don't, I can't, I, I love to watch actors and performance because I, as you can see how, how long it took me to get here, I don't, <laughs> um, I, I'm very um, shy about, about that and I don't, I have a lot of performance anxiety and it was um, quite evident that I was not going to have a very happy life had I continued in that, in that way. Um, and that my physical being might pay a price for that, and there, there she is again, influencing. Right, it takes one person in your life, you know. Um, and I was lucky to have two, and um, and she sort of reckoned. And she she asked me the question. She said, "You know, you're, you're throwing up before every performance. Um, is this the way you want to live your life?" And I, I loved it so much, but my, I just didn't. It was too much anxiety for me and too much pressure. And I agreed with her. And that's when I started to move more into script analysis and sort of, you know, the Adler sort of approach to this craft is, um, it can be somewhat academic as well. This is a lot of research, a lot of backstory, and then you have to sort of connect the head and the heart and, you know, but you have to know the time and place of what you're doing and you have to, you have to know what you're doing. You can't do Ibsen unless you know what the hell's going on. In geographically, socially, in the time and place, right? So, um, and politically, and and um, I followed her advice, and that's the path that I took. 
and I th I think it I it it serviced me because I like you know I sort of love to read and I love to draw you know do that research but it it serviced me in the in in that I can see layers of preparation but here here's where I was an arrogant little you know so and so when I was when I trans when I when I went you know there, there was a recession going on and I thought I was going to move right into teaching um, and that wasn't meant to be because of economic circumstances and various um, at the time at the conservatory and um, Sandra Lee introduced me to a casting director in New York named Bonnie Timmerman. It was the first two seasons of Miami Vice. Is that right? Gary Zickabrod. First it was Ronnie Eskel, then Gary Zickabrod. And I took over from Gary Zickabrod. Bless his soul. And he trained me as quickly as he could. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And then boom, we're in Miami Vice. You talk about actors that are prepared. You talk about actors who work hard, who read over and over and over again. And you were witness to one of the greatest performers of my generation who had no preparation, who always was on the verge of some kind of drug or something that he was involved in. But on screen, he took the screen and he was so powerful. And it was Charlie Barnett who played Noogie in Miami Vice. He had club fingers. Yeah. He was about a five foot three African-American guy and every end of every finger was the size of his thumb. And he had these beautiful fingernails with these white moons and it was so powerful, but he couldn't read. He was illiterate. A story that you should know about Charlie Barnett is in 1980, he was cast and tested for Saturday Night Live and he got the role but he lost the role because they found out he couldn't read cue cards and he was fired and guess who was hired fate eddie, Ed murphy. eddie murphy yeah and so you've worked with people like edward norton who prepare over and over again who were brilliant you work with charlie who every scene he was in on miami vice it seemed like he stole the scene right and then he was fired or released or whatever after 13 episodes or whatever it was probably because of that but how do you deal with somebody like that well I, that that whole show was an is an episode just in itself um 
I mean, you know, you have Miguel Pinero writing, right? I mean, he did Short Eyes, right? So the theater was so vibrant when, it, you know, in, in the, especially when I, you know, I'm a kid from Brooklyn and, and I, I was always, somehow my dad, <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but we were at Avery Fisher Hall. We were at, you know, BAM. We, I don't know how he scored the tickets because he tried his best, but, you know, we didn't, you know, we, we were not wealthy people. Probably um, the higher end of the, the lower income bracket. And my father really believed in education and my mom. And uh, he made sure my brother and I well-educated. Um, that was really important to him. And he made sure that we were good students, um, whether we wanted to be or not. And that had a lot to do with the um, educators that we encountered, especially um, in my high school at the time. I, I went, I was pretty much raised by nuns uh, up and down. And, you know, the, the elementary school education was wonderful um, if, if um, they believed, you know, it was strict. Um, and then I got to Bishop Carney High School, um, which I, I still support and love with all my heart. And you meet, you know, a, a, a sister like Sister Virginia Lake, who, you know, I just had brunch with two months ago, right? I mean, uh, who I will never forget because she was, what do you, what is it that you need? You, you, you need, I will get you this. I will get you. There was no subject we could not go near, even though it was a parochial school in, institution. Mind you, it was 1972 to 1976, right? So that was the time of such change. And she was a young nun. Um, and she was in charge of young women. And she made sure that we were going to go out into the world uh, prepared and not fearful, right? And that was this woman. So this woman was a great influence on you. She prepared you to go out in the world and to not be fearful. Right. Yet your first foray into what you really want to do and you're throwing up before every performance. I think that is, that's just a thing that um, it was, you know, I don't know if it's chemistry or if it was just fear. So you don't blame the woman who was the nun? Are you kidding? We were doing like a different a different play every every month. I had no trouble whatsoever. It's so funny. I think fear begets fear, begets fear, begets fear, right? And I think if you don't, I think there might have been other influences there. And I think um, I was probably a little young to encounter someone like Stella. At the end of the day, I am grateful to have been, but emotionally, I might not have had enough emotional education to be ready for that. And only later could I look back and say, ah, I see what happened there, right? Um, but then fear builds on itself, right? So um, I was quite happy to take the other, the other road, especially because it led, you know, I was introduced to Bonnie and I worked my butt off and, you know, it was me, a temp and Bonnie and there was Miami Vice and we cast the whole show from New York. As a manager, when a casting yeah. director like you would call and say, listen, we have something in New York. Are they living in New York or are they in L.A.? And maybe this is wrong of me. I would always say to you or anybody yeah. of your ilk, I would say, Deb, 
as far as I'm concerned. I just want them on the show. I don't care if they stay at a friend's house. I don't care what the deal is. I don't care if they're homeless. I don't want them living in L.A. to prohibit them from getting this sure. gig. But, you know, the, again, this is now 1982, right? So it's all such it was all such a blur, right? You just had you had to get these folks on a plane. But we cast mostly unless they were folks like Glenn, Glenn Fry or, you know, um, that Bonnie would call up and somehow in her she was like a magician. She would convince these these folks to do the show and. And look how she shaped television from then on in, right? I mean, that was that was that was Bonnie, and so so. But my job was not only to tape and read with everyone, right? Because I read with everyone, and I still do to 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 this day. Um, but I had to do all the all the other work to support and get them on a plane, get them down there. And they, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just an episode, right? So they put them up at a hotel down there, you know, and then they fly them back. And sometimes like Julian Beck, right? He was part of the living theater, right? We had to get him in that episode and get him back because he had a show, right? So that's, that's what I meant by, you know, I sort of lost my train of thought before when it was just, you know, my, you know, I had a, a, a dad that somehow got us into New York City all the time. So we were seeing theater from a very, very young age, right? And it, that itself is inspirational. In, in You asked me a question before. You said, how do you know in 10 minutes or seven minutes, even if it's two and three callbacks, and I think that prepared me, right? There's a there's a, a thing that happens when you're not when you're not just sort of with your head down here, but when you're actually in a scene with somebody. Something else, there's an intuition, right? There's a there's a, a an energy, a chemistry there that that you you're speaking actor to actor. You know what I mean? You're you're seeing this this whole past right there in front of you. Are you wrong sometimes? That's what a callback's for, right? Um, but when I was when I went out on my own after I left Bonnie, um, I I remember this so specifically. There was a young actor who came in, and he was not prepared at all, and he he wasn't very good, right? Or so I thought, right? And I gave that feedback. In the room? No, never. I would never do that. Oh God, no! I'd cut off my arm. Um, no, to the to the reps. Have I asked someone to come back and prepare if they need a little bit more time? Yes, I have done that <laughs> because that's a thing for me, right? I mean, yes, I have done that, but never, never meanly. Um, but I, I said to to the reps, I mean, you know, what 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 the hell was that, right? I mean, like this, I need this, this, this in the part, right? And about a year later, that same person asked me to see that person again. And I went back to my notes, because that's what we do, the Marion Darity, you know, thing. Marion Doherty was yeah. one of the greatest casting directors of she all time. She was the time. godmother. She was the godmother of her And of she's all. one of the first people who I ever did anything with. She cast my young client, Anthony Clark, in Dogfight with the late River Phoenix. But if you see, now, you know, the, the casting by documentary, thankfully, was made. But you see the, 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 
the the detail on her notes, you know, and, and copious amounts of writing and notes. And we did that as well. So did Bonnie. And I didn't want to see this kid a year later, right? Arrogance of youth. And this rep said, you're wrong and you should you should please, 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 please give this kid another shot. And I was just like, oh my God, yes, okay. Just let's, you know, please, yes. And I was dead wrong. And I never made that mistake again. That kid walked in, he was fabulous. And I thought, wow, you're an arrogant young so-and-so, right? And I never made that mistake again, never. It taught me a great lesson. And that's a lesson that I have always given or, or tried to sort of advise um, any assistant or associate that comes up for, you know, through, through Trisha and I. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.